Well, let's jump into our message. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We're in a series uh, that we're calling Gift Exchange. What do you get and what do you give up when Jesus comes into the world? I want to preach a little different kind of sermon today than what I typically preach. And I want to walk us through a passage that is very familiar in the Christmas story, but I think it may almost serve just being from too familiar, or it's become part of just the landscape of what the Christmas story is, and we don't slow down a lot and think about it. And so, if you would, I'm just going to read through our text today, and then we'll go back, and then we'll unpack it together. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is one of the authors of the gospel. There's four gospels in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one bears the name of the author it comes from. And Matthew has given us an account of the birth of Jesus. And several things you're going to recognize in this account that you've seen in the Christmas tradition. Starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another Matthew gives us that part of the nativity scene that has these very unique characters in them. And perhaps you've seen a nativity scene or you're very familiar with it because they they seem to spring up all over the place. I I grew up thinking a nativity scene because I grew up in the days when it was um, G.I. Joe and He-Man and you had these play sets. I thought nativity scene was the most boring play set that you could ever come up with. There was no real action figures in it in the middle of it's a baby. Well, there was always these parts of a playset that I couldn't get of this nativity scene that I couldn't get my mind around squarely. Maybe you've seen one. I've got a picture of a nativity scene here. And this is, this is what uh, a typical nativity scene looks like. And I want to focus in on three of the characters today, or at least three that you see in this. And those are what we call the magi or the wise men. And most of what we picture when we think about them comes from 
not the biblical text, not from our Bibles, but from all the art and all the poetry and all the songs that's come along. And so we're going to unpack some about them today because they're often portrayed in very lavish robes. There's often three of them. In fact, I've got another picture here that I really liked. These are the three guys we want to talk about. Now, if you're brand new to church and you're still trying to figure out Christianity and where you believe, you're going to be very familiar with parts of this story, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There's a lot of what we think, we assume we know about these wise men that we really don't. And so you're just like a bunch of Christians today because we're going to kind of unpack the story and get back to it. In fact, we're not sure how many there were. We're not sure that there was three. The reason that three comes up is because the amount of gifts. There could have been two. There could have been 12. We're not sure. There could have been one guy that shows up with all the gifts, and the other guys look behind him and say, hey, that's from us too. You know. But we know just very little about them. But I want to unpack this story today. Because we're going to learn about some of the things that they exchange because Jesus comes into the world. And so they begin, Matthew begins like this. And if you want to look back, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem That's what Matthew tells us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Most everything else we start to kind of add in just from our culture. And it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not um, harping on it. I'm just saying we've got to get our framework back to what these guys really were. So who are these guys? And I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about who were they, what were they looking for, and what did they find? So begin with who, who they were. In the NIV, it's going to say magi. In other translations, it's going to say wise men. And this is an effort to try to take a word that's not very familiar to us and make a translation of it. The, these magi, and if you'll notice, it's not hard to see that magi looks like the beginning of magic or magician. And in some sense, that's what they were, but not fully. When we hear the word wise men, we may think about somebody that did very well on their SATs, and they, they're a scholar or they're, they're a, a sage, a philosopher. That's partly right, but not totally. Some see them as, because we know that they're following the star, some see them as, as astrologers, you know, which would have a lot of superstition built in then. That's kind of right, but not fully. There's some that would see more as astronomers with actual science, and that may be a better way to look at it, that there's a science to what they're doing, and they're trying to observe the natural world, and they make recordings of what they see, and there's responses to it. And they're also a type of priest, or a type of theological thinkers. And so perhaps one of the best ways to look at them is they see science and theology together, and they're trying to watch the phenomenon in the world. What they believe is that as they observe the skies, 
as they observe the cosmos and the movement of the stars and the planets, that there's some kind of linkage between what they're seeing in the stars, what they're seeing in the night sky, and what's happening in life and in history. And they're bringing that knowledge and they're pairing it with their theology, with their understanding of the divine, because that's why they're seeking the stars. See, in our modern world today, we really struggle because lots of times we think that science and faith are at odds with one another, that, that they're in conflict with one another, and they've got to be kept apart. And you really can't have faith if you're a person of science. And you really can't be a person of science if you purport to have some faith. This is a distinction that's relatively new, by the way. This is not a distinction that's supported by history. So they would have felt no tension. There would have been no awkward discussions about, wow, it seems like you're missing, mixing your science and your faith together. Those need to be kept se separate in any conversation these guys were having. But they were seeking the divine, and the revelation that they were looking for was coming from the stars. And they were combining their science and their theology, and that's who these men are. Now, often they're portrayed as, you know, well-dressed, riding on camels. I often thought they were overdressed to be riding on camels. It didn't seem comfortable at the time, the way. We know they come from the east. Our best understanding is they're going to come somewhere from Persia, somewhere perhaps from the Babylonian Empire, perhaps even from Babylon itself. And... There's a tie back to the Old Testament with them. Because if they do come from Babylon, there's a real good chance that what they are is they are students of Daniel, the prophet that was exiled into Babylon. And they've been reading these old texts. More than 500 years have passed but once again, they're scholars and they're studious and they're studious and they've been watching the sky and they've been reading prophecies from this people that they've never been to yet. Because Daniel had this influence and his legacy has carried carried on. And so, once again, we don't know how many there were. We don't know exactly where they were come from, but if they did come from Babylon. That's an 800-mile walk. Perhaps they were on camels. We, we don't know. But I do know that it would take them a long time to get there. Estimates would be at 40 days minimum. And they come and they see something in the sky. In fact, that's what verse, verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 tells us this. They show up and they ask, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Where is the one that is the king of the Jews? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. They are watching, and they've seen sun phenomenon in the sky. Now, I don't want us to get too hung up in the star. 
Now, there are some fascinating studies that you can do on the star, and there's all kinds of different possibilities that it could be. It could be that God actually changed something about the trajectory of the plants and the stars to create something that was out of sync with anything that had happened before. Possible. It could be that God knew the alignment of the stars and the planets and the comets and everything else that was going to go on, and He, in His great wisdom and power, timed it out perfectly to where the star would appear, whatever would happen in the sky would appear at the same time that the wise men, these magi, needed to see it. Totally possible, too. And you can go in, you can do a real deep dive on that, and there's some very interesting stuff. But that's not what we have here. We have this very simple line that says, we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. And one thing that I want to encourage you is because, once again, we put so much tradition and so many other parts of the story that on top of it that I don't want it to get confusing, especially if you're brand new to seeing the story through the eyes of faith. And, like, do I have to interpret the star and do I have to know all these things that are behind the scenes to interpret this? No. I like the way a preacher named Alistair Begg puts it. He says this, The main things are the plain things. What we have from Matthew is what we need to know. And these men have been watching the sky and they've been studying the old text. And something happens to where they see a connection between the two. And whatever that is, they know they need to leave their city, cross at least 800 miles, to see what happens. Can you imagine the conversation they had with their wives? You're going where? Why? You've been hanging out with your friends again, haven't you? Well, honey, it's kind of like a business trip we're going on. You've been reading the old prophecies, haven't you? Yes. And so they take this journey and one of the things that I would just suggest from what we see these men do is that as Jesus calls you on your journey as he invites you to come towards him there is an exchange and one of those things is that you give up your comfort they're going to a foreign land they're going to a foreign place it's a difficult journey they're leaving luxury, they're leaving comfort, they're leaving the security, they're leaving all their friends. It goes from an intellectual discussion to a reality in their life. From a theory, from a chat, from sitting around the coffee table saying, well, what do you think and what do you think and I see it this way and I see it this way and all those discussions and it moves into something so compelling that they have to go into action. And the call of Jesus invites them out of their comfort zone. And the call of Jesus invites, us, invites you out of your comfort zone. And maybe this is the Christmas. Maybe this is the holiday season. Where you hear that call and you step out in faith. The story goes on. Verse 3. Now we get to King Herod. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, what did he hear? 
he'd heard that the guys had showed up, and what they did is when they got to Jerusalem, they just went around asking everybody that they saw, where's the king? Where's the king born of the Jews? Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? And people in Jerusalem are like, we don't know what you're talking about. And they don't want to cause any kind of problems because Herod is always listening. Herod's got his spies everywhere. And so this commotion arises up. So it makes it all the way to Herod. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. Well, if Herod's disturbed, all of Jerusalem's going to be disturbed. When he, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. And now he gives, they give Herod the prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. You see what's going on there? First of all, if the the Magi were following prophecies of Daniel. They didn't have the prophecy of Micah. And this is where this prophecy comes from. And so they were close, but they were in the wrong place. They knew they were supposed to go to where the king of the Jews was born. And so they set out to where you would naturally go. Jerusalem, it's the capital. There's a palace there. That's where you're going to find a king. So they go into Jerusalem and they start asking around everybody, hey, we know the king's been born. Where's it been born? They don't know what to talk about. It makes it up to Herod. Herod calls all of his chief priests together, calls all the teachers of the law. They go to other prophecies, and they know exactly where. Do you see a problem? These guys have come from 800 miles away. And the people in Jerusalem are not even looking for the king. They know about the prophecy. What's the difference? Herod's threatened. Herod's not comfortable with this. This is not Herod giving up his comfort zone. This is Herod giving up his power. You don't allow rivals to the throne to come close. And so these guys that have come all this way, they don't know it, but they're stirring up a problem now. And so Herod gets everybody together, and they said, oh, it's right over in Bethlehem. And I wonder if Herod was just shocked when that happened. I wonder if he just said, why haven't you told me? Because he knows there's a threat that he's got to deal with it. There's another exchange that's got to happen. Another exchange that's got to happen when... We seek this Jesus that they sought after, and it's this. You have to give up your pride. You see, they could have stood back and said, I, we're intellectually superior. We're, we're, our wealth is superior. In fact, at the time, Jerusalem would have been a little out-of-the-way kingdom, not, not a threat on the world scale. And yet they travel all this way, Seeking one that's so humble in all appearances. And Herod sits in the palace and sits in the fortress and sits at the seat of power. 
And he's threatened because he's not going to let go of his pride. Now he tells them he's going to worship them. But what he's actually looking for is the information to wipe out all threats to his throne. And we know in a, just a little bit later in this story that he orders the execution of all boys two years and younger because he's already asked them, when did the star first appear? When was this child born? Picking up again, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact place and the time. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And then here's the star again. Then the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Man, what a powerful scene. Now, first of all, we have to undo our nativity scenes just a little bit. Most likely, this could have been up to anywhere up to including two years later. So they're in a house now. They're not in the stable. They're not in the barn. And we don't even know where Joseph is in this story. But they're overjoyed because all this journey is coming to an end. And now, through the direction of Herod and the scribes and what the star is telling them, they've located Jesus. And it says they come in and they're overjoyed because they found what they've been looking for. Does that describe you? Does that describe your experience when Jesus, and maybe for some of you, you have to think way back several decades ago when your first, Jesus was first becoming real to you. And there was a joy there. There, there was a passion there. There was an excitement there. Unfortunately, sometimes in church, we try to dampen that out, don't we? We try to, try to smooth it out. I, I love sharing the story of one of the guys that was at my church growing up. And he had come, his name was Billy, and he'd come out of the world. And he had come off of drugs and he'd come off of, you just kind of go down the list of everything that you don't want your child to be associated with. He'd been associated with it. And when he found Jesus, he was all in. So he, he came to Jesus, he led his wife to Jesus, and they would sit down right there near the front. And when we would worship, they would just be like, yeah. And we weren't that kind of church yet. And their hands, and they were just praising the Lord, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. And some people would complain. And I so love it because the elders were so wise at that moment. They said, they tell the people that complain, said, We don't do that here. And they said, Listen, he's just now found Jesus. He'll calm down and be like the rest of us. Don't worry. <laughs> and he never did. Several years later, when he passed away at his funeral in a massive worship center, 
thousand people. With the joy of the Lord. And they come and they lay down these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts, gifts they're all deserving of a king. Gold, rare and valuable. Frankincense, a, a, a type of incense. Very priestly. Um, very much part of the idea of what it meant to worship God in that structure, in that system. And myrrh, a fragrance, a, a perfume in many ways, particularly used to embalm the bodies. You see what they're doing? They're, they're defining who Jesus is, and they don't even realize what they're doing. But here's one that's a king, a priest, and will lay down his life for his people. And they worship. Now it doesn't say it worshipped them. It doesn't say it worshipped him and Mary. It just says it worshipped him, this child. And in that moment, there's the great exchange. With that joy, that fruition of the journey they had been on. I would love to have been with them on the journey back home, wouldn't you? Not because I'm riding a camel. But I would love to have asked them questions. I said, what was that like? And when you were bowed down worshiping him and you had given your treasures over, did you receive him into your heart? Did you confess your sins before him, before this child? Did, did you have an understanding that you were in front of not just a king, but the king of kings? Not just a Lord, but the Lord of lords. Not just a man, but a God man. So the question for your journey and what I love about these guys is, is they came from a faraway place of the globe. And one thing that we've got to realize is what this is telling us is that God gathers his people from all corners of the earth. From all walks of life. From all age groups and demographics. He's calling people to himself. And I don't know what he used to first get your attention. It may have been something phenomenal and miraculous like a star in the sky. It may have been something simple as a next door neighbor saying, come with me to church. But God used something to get your attention. To start you on this journey. And so here's where the journey leads. And here's my question for you as you end is this. Will you? Exchange the earthly treasures in your hand for the treasure of heaven in your heart. There's the exchange at Christmas. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are incredible and they're valuable. But they're finite and they're temporary. The child that they worshipped is forever. Will you make the same exchange? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for 
these three men, these men, however many there are, that we don't know much about. But I'm grateful for their journey. I'm grateful for the way that it culminates in the presence of you. Father, I pray for everyone here that's seeking Jesus right now. And their journey may just be beginning. And it seems like it's a long way off, but help us to know, Father, because you stepped into the world, the journey is very near. And it's close. So, Father, let us lay down our comfort. Let us lay down our pride. Let us lay down our wealth. And exchange all earthly treasures for the treasure of heaven. So, Father, I'm praying for anyone, whether they're present in this room, they're watching this online, that still feels like they want to hold something back, they're not yet sure ready to let go of that, that you would begin a work in them today. That you would, if you have to move, the stars in the sky would show them that you're here and present. And I ask all this in the name of the one that they worshipped and we worship now. In his name we pray. Amen.